0: A maverick fighter pilot who trusts his gut and rebels against the obsolete institutions of authority that have long been mired in the muck of their own incompetence, he is the self-made man, the model of the individual's capacity to be a lone voice of truth. This is a quintessential modernist story, descended from the Reformation and the Enlightenment. It's the story of Tom Cruise in Top Gun. But it's also Indiana Jones. It's. Jack Reacher. The list goes on and on. But wait a minute. If the modernist impulse is true, shouldn't these stories include more kinds of people than white men like Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford? Who is not being included in this story? And what if this hero story is actually a tool of oppression itself? What if modernism didn't go far enough and we need to rebel against that story? These are some of the challenging questions of postmodernism. And so, what emerges out of this critique? The attempt to characterize the maverick men of the world as either incompetent or malevolent, and to replace their typical role in the story with those seen as being oppressed by white men. The postmodern story has been a story marked primarily by cynicism, irony, and deconstruction toward stories of the past which were seen as upholding the values of the past after postmodern fight club deconstructed capitalism and consumerism after it tore apart the american dream of working a stable 9 to 5 in order to accumulate possessions after it called into question the entire system it merely left you there with no pathway to rebuild or reconstruct and so emerges metamodernism. Hello. 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 My name is Joe Pera. My name is Joe Para. My name is Joe Pera. A delicate dance, gracefully oscillating between the contours of modern and postmodern thought, entwining within its fabric both the light of hope and the shadow of melancholy. The dance is a paradoxical blend, where the purity of naivete interlaces with the wisdom of knowingness, and the ebb and flow of emotions coexist, empathy brushing up against apathy. Within this dance, metamodernism presents itself as an artful fusion, a tapestry woven from threads of informed naivete and pragmatic idealism. It ceaselessly shifts between the immediate and the transcendent, a perpetual motion that reintroduces depth into the realms both philosophical and artistic. This death is not merely a return to the old forms, but a new iteration, an attempt, personal, intimate depth, an attempt through self-aware irony at sincerity. It is an aesthetic that beckons us to question not the system, but ourselves and our own shortcomings. This is part two of Metamodernism, a longing for mundane transcendence. You're listening to deep talks exploring theology and meaning making i'm your host paul anleitner this podcast contains no advertisements it is a listener supported podcast we're about halfway to our goal of 200 patrons this year to continue this podcast and continue the other work that i give away freely i don't even monetize my youtube channel uh, you can go over to my substack page i don't charge for subscriptions over there as well My principle is freely receive, freely receive, freely give. I give away what I think is helpful in hopes that others who find it to be helpful might support it and give something of value in return. If this is one of your most listened to podcasts, or if you're finding this series to be helpful in uh, helping you engage with the current cultural moment and understand what might be going on in our new stories then i encourage you to become a supporter on patreon by following the link below in the description click on that link become a supporter at whatever level you see fit now if you haven't listened to part one of this series i encourage you go back and listen to that i'm going to do a brief review and a brief overview at the top of this episode but i really encourage you go back listen to part one and then jump into this Part one of this series, we discussed the philosophical and aesthetic foundations of meta modern art and storytelling. Let's take a moment now to quickly review what we could call the core ingredients of meta-modern storytelling. And I want to make something clear from the outset. When we talk about meta modern art and storytelling, I don't think we're at this point right now where people are intentionally saying, Here are the ingredients I need to include so that I can be a meta modern storyteller. It's not like that. We're using this term meta modern to describe a pattern that we might see emerging in a culture. In the same way, I don't think, you know, we would look back and say, you know, so-and-so was trying intentionally to make a postmodern story. Perhaps at some point, there were people intentionally trying to incorporate these postmodern ingredients. And when that happens, that's typically when these stories lose their potency, is when instead of people kind of intuitively reaching for what is happening in this cultural moment and how do I speak to it using a more intuitive sense of, of storytelling and art? When people shift from that into going, I'm checking off a box, a list of necessary ingredients in order to make a meta-modern film or a post-modern film or something like that, I don't think it works like that. When it does, the art is pretty impotent and it feels a little stale, it feels... Uh, in need of a new dialogue partner to come in and to speak something new. And I think that's what's happening actually right now with metamodernism. I don't think we have metamodern storytellers and artists that are necessarily sitting down and going, I need to make metamodern art. But I think we can actually look at some patterns. We can look at some reoccurring trends. We can look at some of these core ingredients and we go, something different is happening here. And I think maybe the best way to describe it is to call it metamodern. So again, to review that first ingredient, and we talked about this in part one of this series, is the dance of sincerity and irony. At the heart of metamodernism is this delicate dance between sincerity and irony, oftentimes using irony as a vehicle to speak sincerely about something. Sincerity and irony seem like they're contradictory elements, and so when that happens, you feel this tension, this oscillation, Back and forth between the sincerity and irony. It feels at odds. But what it actually does in effect is it creates a multi dimensional and thought provoking experience for the creator and the consumer of that particular story. The second ingredient would be authenticity and engagement. Sincerity and metamodernism shouldn't be confused with earnestness. We talked about that. We're not just talking about the sort of earnestness that you would see in modern storytelling, which we'll talk a little bit more about today. not just earnestness. It's an attempt to be authentic. And to be authentic means to embrace genuine emotions, to be sincere in speaking a particular way, but not naive. In the realm of art and culture, sincerity beckons creators to explore themes and emotions honestly. And so without that, many people feel an emptiness behind the art. And I think that is what metamodernism is attempting to emerge out of. The emptiness that many people feel is accompanied by the experience of consuming postmodern art and storytelling. The detached irony of postmodernism leaves people with a lack of of depth, a lack of sincere connection. The third ingredient that you look for in metamodern storytelling is what we might call sincerity in practice. In films, this looks like moments that actually create, or I should say, evoke from the viewer, from the audience uh, these moments of genuine empathy, a genuine sense of emotional connection, even if it is surrounded by a container or casing of, you know, self-aware irony, um, of the sort of meta modern or uh, even postmodern sense that someone is breaking the fourth wall, that sort of stuff which might be used again in postmodern storytelling as critique, as deconstruction, as cynicism. The practice of sincerity is something that would distinguish a metamodern story from a postmodern story. You're actually moving through those same expressions Like breaking the fourth wall, but you're doing that in service of having a moment of maybe genuine emotion, of genuine, of genuflection, of introspection happen among the audience or among the viewer. The next ingredient is, again, and this is attached to what we just talked about, is self-reflective deconstruction. Irony in metamodernism serves primarily as a self-reflective tool. So instead of critiquing large overarching systems, critiquing the man, critiquing the matrix, you are using the irony as a tool of self-reflection to explore perhaps the inadequacies, not just in the system, and that still might be included in metamodern storytelling, but that's backgrounded. And what's foregrounded is the opportunity for these ironic moments to invite sincere reflection about our own state of being, about our own relationships, about maybe the things in our own life that need to be healed or need, you know, what's very in vogue now is to, that, that, that need counseling, um, that, that need to go through some form of cognitive behavioral therapy or psychotherapy. So it's often pushing the viewer to reflect not necessarily on we need to take down the whole system, (laughs) there's something wrong. It's not in this sort of Marxist revolutionary uh, impulse. It is much more about the inward reflection of the viewer who is actually engaging with the medium of art and storytelling. Metamodern storytelling and art still contains, again, these ironic moments within the story uh, for example, you might have a story that plays with genre expectations. Of course, we talked about Shrek as one example, where Shrek is playing on and inverting the uh, the common fairy tale story, the ancient stories, and it inverts the expectations. It's doing that to subvert familiar story arcs and to get the viewer to engage critically with the story. It's like we've heard the story and over and over. So what do we do if we actually subvert the expectations around the story? Shrek's a good example of this. You know, there's been a whole run of movies that I don't think they ever received any critical acclaim, but did similar things. Um, You have the Maleficent movies where they are definitely subverting the uh, many of the, 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 the old stories that Disney took. You've got the Snow White and the Huntsman. And again, I i mean, I'm, I've maybe seen, I don't think I've even finished that movie. I've, I've seen it before. I just, the execution was not not something that I felt like deserved a continual viewing from me. But it's a very similar thing where you're taking the fairy tale, you're taking the ancient story, the old story, you're taking the the story that got repurposed in modernist storytelling through the classic Disney films. And you're taking that and then you subvert the expectation. Now, of course, that is something that always has been a feature of postmodern storytelling. But metamodern storytelling still does that and still operates with this expectation. Yes, I get you know this story, but what if we changed your expectation to create in you an opportunity for critical thinking? Now, this critical thinking then is not steered in purpose of critiquing the entire system. That still might be there in part, but again, the focus is not on systemic, you know, stick it to the man sort of stuff that millennials really got into, (laughs) Gen Xers, older, you know, younger Gen Xers got into, but it's much more in service of internal reflection. The next ingredient was what we had called the oscillation effect. So the the magic here of MetaModern storytelling lies in its ability to oscillate between sincerity and irony, to have sincerity emerge out of irony. And that tension that you experience in those qu- sorts of films, television shows, books, graphic novels, that tension isn't static. It's continuously back and forth like a game of ping pong or you know, the in vogue pickleball, it's moving back and forth between sides. It's dynamic. And so metamodernism is in some sense, it's not like, is it irony or sincerity? It is the actual ping pong game or the pickleball game of that ball moving back and forth, creating something in and of itself, which is new. It's not just a ball on one side of the court. It's a ball being played back and forth and the oscillation between sides creates this unique, really interesting effect. An effect where I think it actually allows as a doorway for people who have only learned. There are many people who, I and I've encountered people like this, who seem like they can't get at sincerity in, in conversation, that, that all of their own conversation is soaked with layers and layers of irony. Irony that's intended to steer towards humor, and that humor creates some form of connection. But it's also, to me, it has all often seemed like that kind of humor, the constant irony. And I'm talking again about in personal relationships with people, often seems like it's masking a fear of depth, of authenticity. And so, as people kind of bottom out out, out from that experience, it's not like they're instantly ready to jump into like a like a pure earnestness of a, you know, you might compare. I, let me think of another example. Well, let's, 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 let's move outside of storytelling for a moment and think of music. Um, there's a relatively popular band called Wolfpack, and they are incredible virtuoso musicians. But the musicianship and the songwriting is heavily ironic. Um, the music videos that they release on Instagram and uh and i don't know I, i'm not on tiktok but i'm guessing they're on tiktok too as well are just soaked in irony and they're virtuoso musicians i mean like every single player in the band freak musicianship i don't feel much sincerity in the art uh, it feels like the irony is a tool for creating uh some sort of expression that's very very popular and just by their own sheer virtuoso musicianship, you're like engaged with it because you're like, man, that bass player, that drummer is phenomenal. But that's a very different experience and I'm dating myself here <laughs> to another reference, but I think of a great example in the early 90s of, boy, you couldn't get more earnest than let's say, you know, Eddie, Ve- Eddie Vedder the lead singer of Pearl Jam belting out a song or, or Bono in U2. There's this sincerity in their songs that um i don't know if generations younger who have been more fully immersed in the irony of postmodernism are able to access that sincerity without experiencing it as cringe right cringe is the key the key term for gen z here <laughs> they experience that level of unmitigated sincerity, of unfiltered sincerity is almost cringy. And so I think the way that you would have to get at sincerity is that you have to get at it through the communicative tool of irony. So again, this is all stuff that we've covered in the first episode, but I want to do a brief review before we keep going. And of course, another feature of that is this sort of tension that we experience as you consume metamodern storytelling, that you experience that tension between irony and sincerity, but it's seeking to find harmonious balance. It's seeking to f- try to find, you know, a a balancing act between the two. Not that you would walk out and go, man, that was really ironic and cynical. And not that you would go out and be like, man, that was just like that was syrupy and so like like well Cringy, you know, like so syrupy that you're like, oh my goodness, it's it's like so naive. You don't want to have either of those things. So metamodernism is trying, metamodern storytelling is trying to balance those scales, to have both of those things happen to create this new expression that would allow people to engage with the story and with their own internal story in an authentic way. So now that we've done that little review and I've already talked about in the first episode some examples on the big screen and the small screen. I want to focus in in today's episode on some examples in television that um, wouldn't classify necessarily as drama or action. We talked about some of those already in the first part of this series. And instead, I want to turn our attention to some examples in comedy that might help us understand the differences between modern postmodern, and metamodern storytelling. The Cosby Show, which aired from 1984 to 1992, took, by many accounts, a pretty revolutionary step in American pop culture by portraying an African-American upper middle-class family called the Huxtables. The show's focus on the Huxtable family's daily life, professional achievements, and familial bonds mirrored the aspirations of the upwardly mobile African American community during that time. This aspiration for success and inclusion within the American dream resonated with modernist ideals of individual progress and the potential for change. Now some might say, Paul, how can you point to the Cosby show as an example of modernist comedy? Wouldn't the inclusion of an African American family into this kind of story be an example of postmodern storytelling, right? Haven't you already said, Paul, that the postmodern impulse has been to say, well, let's take the modernist story, which focuses on how the individual achieves through their own work ethic, through their own commitment to virtue. They become heroes in a story up and against the institutions of society that might be attempting to hold them back or might just be obsolete and incompetent? And then isn't postmodernism the the question about, well, who else should be included in this story? And the focus on groups, peoples that might not fit the modernist story? So wouldn't The Cosby Show be an example of Postmodern storytelling? No, it's not. And let me explain why. The Cosby Show still very much fits within the classical liberalism, the Enlightenment period. It still contains those values and the values of the modernist movement that accompanied it. It still very much fits within many of the common threads of modernist storytelling. You can take a look at the achieved positions of social status of the Huxtables. They are respectable, they've achieved high ranks of social status, and they've achieved that through their hard work and education. That's key. Much of the modernist storytelling focuses on the value of meritocracy over aristocracy. In other words, your work ethic and aptitude for excellence determines your outcomes in life and whether you should be seen as a hero or not. Not the class you were born into. You know, you might not see Cliff Huxtable as like, you know, Tom Cruise Maverick and in Top Gun, like rebelling against a system, but here's the common thread. They're both operating off of a meritocracy, a principled meritocracy, right? Where you get to achieve your status through hard work, through earning your way, through actually having the ability, primarily through hard work. And by trusting your instincts, but it's through you. You're a self-made individual. So it's not that you get this position because you are part of some rich uh, arist- you know, aristocratic family. That's not how it works. And this is the case for the Huxtables. Cliff Huxtable is a doctor. His wife, Claire, is a lawyer. How did they get to that position? Through their hard work. They've paid their dues. Both of them are self-made individuals, and so that's why their story still resonates as a modernist story, even though it's portraying African-American heroes who might not have been the traditional heroes of prior modernist stories. It still fits within that value system. This is what made the Cosby show almost universally accepted and loved, no matter the color of your skin when it was airing. The Cosbys were an example that it is the content of your character that mattered, not the color of your skin. This is very much in keeping with the sort of liberalism of even Martin Luther King Jr. And people might go and be like, Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't a liberal? Again, we're talking about the broader Enlightenment liberalism. And of course, you know, MLK also had um, what you might say are you know some some left leaning proclivities when it came to economic policy and how you how you actually maybe create conditions where people can become more upwardly mobile. But the I Have a Dream speech is what the, the central f- focus and feature is about his dream that people would be judged in a meritocracy on the content of their character, and not the color of their skin. In some ways, it's like critiquing a kind of aristocracy in which you are born into particular classes based on the color of your skin. And so that's why I think The Cosby Show still works. It is a modernist comedy. It's modern storytelling. The storytelling of The Cosby Show follows a predictable, modernist, linear structure. And while being a comedy, you won't watch, go back and watch it. My wife and I, I don't know, we were sitting around a few nights ago and there was like a... Cosby Show marathon going on. I don't know. We must have watched quite a few episodes there just sitting there in a row. And it's really preachy. (laughs) The comedy serves, it seems to just be there as part of a larger purpose and a larger function of delivering moral lessons that would be commonly acceptable within the classically liberal tradition so, it is very much a story that is telling you about how you should live within the accepted structure. So, you're going to have episodes that are, I mean, almost every episode is focused on family values in a way that has, again, across the West at the time, would have had overarching shared agreement by people of all different sorts of backgrounds within America and Western culture. Family values, They're constantly stressing the value of education, personal growth, being people of honesty and integrity, treating other people with kindness and respect. And within the Cosby Show, how is progress attained? Progress is based on the inherent worth of individuals, regardless of their race, and on their ability to work hard and to work with integrity to achieve their dreams. That all still very much fits the philosophical framework of modernism it still descends it still fits the from the descent of the the reformation and the enlightenment yes are we challenging institutions not in the same way that postmodernism challenges institutions it's challenging aristocratic formations of institutions and trying to replace that with meritocracy people should get to the same positions but they should get to these positions through their hard work effort, determination, becoming a self-made man, a self-made woman. Another great example of a modernist comedy would be Home Improvement. Man, I just loved Home Improvement as a kid growing up. It was probably the, the, the Detroit connection, being a kid from Metro Detroit and the whole show being set in Metro Detroit. I don't know, there was something about that. But Home Improvement, which aired from 1991 to 1999, captured the essence. Of modernist storytelling within the genre of comedy. Tim Taylor, the central character of the show, epitomized the modernist archetype of the inquisitive individual seeking to improve his surroundings through technological exploration and experimentation. Sure, much of the humor of the show comes at Tim's expense, but this isn't like a satirical takedown of the patriarchy. That's not what the purpose of that comedy is in Home Improvement. Tim is largely a good father. He's faithful to his wife. He's got that strong Detroit work ethic. Each episode offers a moral lesson that fits neatly within the values of the liberal enlightenment tradition. Sure, just like the Cosby show, there are episodes that playfully address changing notions about women's roles and the home and and the world that were taking place in the, the 80s and in the 90s. But there's no real irony or cynicism. There's not that self-aware, self-deprecating, you know, self-referential humor in the show. It's just earnest. From start to finish, it's an earnest show. Every single episode with some moral lesson. For those who have been saturated almost exclusively in postmodern comedies, going back and watching something from the 80s and 90s like the Cosby show or home improvement or let's say even the even more family friendly uh full house or family matters those tgif shows from the 90s you go back and you put someone who has maybe been completely saturated in postmodern comedic storytelling and you have them watch one of those episodes and uh I'm. I'm telling you, they're gonna probably experience all of the moralizing. They're gonna experience some of the sappy, syrupy stuff as just preachy, naive, overly sentimental, and unintentionally cringe. For a practical experience, you want to have a practical experience that gives you the sense, like the aesthetic experience, the aesthetic, the aesthetic difference between modernist, modern comedic storytelling and postmodern comedic storytelling, here's what you do. Grab, you know, wherever you, what streaming service might have these on. I don't know what they are. I'm not going to make a plug for them. You, you get an episode of The Cosby Show. You get an episode of Home Improvement. And you watch those back to back. And you have a good grasp on, all right, this is modern storytelling in the form of a comedy. And then you watch that with pretty much any episode of Seinfeld from, I'd say, season three onward, and you're going to notice some stark differences. Seinfeld is a great example of nihilistic postmodern comedy. What ingredients in Seinfeld make it postmodern? Let's explore that next. I had a very interesting lunch with George Costanza today. Really? We were talking about our lives, and we both kind of realized we're kids. We're not men. So then you asked yourselves, isn't there something more to life? Yes, we did. (laughs) Yeah, well, let me clue you in on something. There isn't. (laughs) Remember that postmodern storytelling uses ironic, self-conscious awareness of its own artifice as a tool to question the narratives of modernity. While much of postmodern storytelling might be driven by activist impulses to question the system for revolutionary change, Seinfeld shouldn't be seen in that light. There was no grand goal to Seinfeld, no Fight Club-esque political critiquing of the system. Larry David, co-creator of Seinfeld with Jerry Seinfeld, had two famous rules for the show, which were no hugging, and no learning. (laughs) If Seinfeld was critiquing anything, it was critiquing the sentimental, preachy morality common of the genre of sitcoms like The Cosby Show and Home Improvement. Seinfeld functioned as postmodern storytelling through several key ingredients. First, deconstruction of traditional plot lines. One of the most innovative aspects of Seinfeld lies in its deconstruction of traditional narrative plotlines. Unlike typical sitcoms that follow a linear structure with neatly resolved conflicts at the end of each episode, Seinfeld subverted genre expectations by exploring the mundane, often without tidy resolutions. There was no learning at the end of the episode, no hugging at the end where everybody suddenly got along. Instead of relying on those traditional setups and payoffs, the show celebrated the randomness and chaos of everyday life, mirroring postmodern skepticism towards overarching meaning. The second postmodern ingredient that we can see in Seinfeld is intertextuality and meta-storytelling. Seinfeld masterfully embraced intertextuality and meta-storytelling, both hallmarks of postmodernism. The show frequently referenced its own episodes, creating a complex network of connections and inside jokes for those that would watch every single episode. The self-referential approach heightened engagement as viewers were rewarded for their familiarity with the show's extensive lore. The use of callbacks, returning characters, running gags created a sense of interconnectedness, mirroring the postmodern emphasis on the fluidity of meaning. I mean, the entire show revolves around stand-up comedian Jerry Seinfeld playing Jerry Seinfeld, who eventually writes a pilot for a show about nothing that he and George pitched to NBC, all of this happening within their show about nothing airing on NBC. Though it's not as fourth wall breaking as something like Deadpool, Seinfeld did break the wall between the audience and the screen. There were hints that you're like, do they have an awareness that they're in the show about nothing. Whereas, like the Cosby show or something like that, you would be laughing at the characters and the story happening within the screen. It wasn't like what was happening within the screen was like inviting you, was speaking directly to you about the fact that they themselves are in the screen playing a role. Right? There was something about Seinfeld that started to do that, especially as it moved into that storyline uh, where, again, Jerry and George are, are writing the pilot episode for the show about nothing within the show about nothing. Made you go, I think they know that they're speaking across the medium of the screen to me. Now, obviously, this sort of stuff has been played to a much further extent in things like Deadpool, um, Mr. Robot, for example— you could even in some ways see like The Office and Parks and Rec and that sort of documentary style approach where they're actually speaking to, uh, to the camera, speaking to you as the audience. You could see hints of that in there as well. The third postmodern ingredient that you could see in Seinfeld is the way that Seinfeld foregrounds the meaninglessness of the mundane. Perhaps most famously, this show about nothing foregrounded the most mundane of human behaviors and interests and overlooked aspects of culture, from lighthearted discussions about serial preferences to stupid, endless debates about the etiquette of double-dipping. The show elevated the commonplace into moments of humor and insight. You can see this as part of the postmodern impulse to highlight the stories of the overlooked. Now, is Seinfeld doing this in like the kind of activist culture way of over, like highlighting the stories of overlooked peoples? No, but it is still kind of grabbing on that postmodern impulse, which many of the modern stories, right? You think of a story like a, a Star Wars or, you know, I've referenced Top Gun already, these dramatic stories in which heroes are being called upon to do something that you would objectively step back and go, yeah, pretty significant. You know, Star Wars, you're saving the galaxy, you know, from the evil empire. That's pretty significant. Top Gun, you're you're saving us from whoever the enemy is, right? They never actually say who the enemy is, what nation it is. You're kind of like left to your own conclusions. But um, either way, you'd step back and go, yeah, they're doing something that most people would say are significant. Well, what about the insignificant features of daily life? I think the postmodern impulse has been this like all right, what has not been included in the modernist story. And it's not that it's necessarily adding value to it, but in some ways it's adding value to it by merely mentioning it. Now, Seinfeld is not doing something that's like, hey, these mundane things are significant and sacred. Instead, though, it seems to take more of the approach of like, hey, most of your life is this stuff. Isn't that pretty absurd and funny? Like, did you ever notice? That's Jerry Seinfeld's humor is helping you look at the things that you probably overlook and go, isn't that stupid and absurd? And this brings us to the last ingredient, embracing the absurd and nihilism. Engaging with nihilism and absurdity are central to postmodern storytelling, and Seinfeld fully embraces these themes. The characters often found themselves entangled in situations that had no ultimate purpose. This reflects the show's inclination to expose the futility of human endeavors. The famous line, a show about nothing, became a playful nod to this existential exploration, challenging the conventions of typical sitcoms. Unlike many sitcom heroes, the show is self-aware that Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer are not moral exemplars. They are self-absorbed, cynical, empty people, who ultimately end up in jail in the series finale for their moral depravity. This makes that show very different than Friends. Friends, they are self-absorbed, empty people, but it doesn't seem like they know it. It doesn't seem like the audience knows that either. They don't get that. In the end of Friends, the characters are largely rewarded for the behaviors. Some move out to the suburbs. Others find true love. Not the characters in Seinfeld. Unrepentant, they carry on their absurd conversations about the mundane and the jail cell together. I don't know if you've seen the ending of the show, right? The, the ending of the entire series. They are sentenced to jail essentially for their moral depravity. They did not, um, I can't remember what state they landed in, Massachusetts, inadvertently landed in Massachusetts or Maryland trying to get to NBC's headquarters to uh, to talk about the uh, the show about nothing pitch and they all, the main characters end up Observing a carjacking with a heavyset man being carjacked in the middle of the street, and in their moral depravity, their self-absorption, the emptiness, the vacuousness of their their moral depravity, uh, they make fun of the man who's getting carjacked. Police officer sees that and arrests them because in this particular state, they have a Good Samaritan law that you actually have to aid and assist those within uh, reason who are in need and in uh, You know in a situation like being carjacked for example you know it's it's pretty brilliant it's pretty a pretty brilliant way i think to conclude the series they get arrested for that and there's a trial and all of the characters from past episodes the soup nazi all the ex-boyfriends and girlfriends show up and on trial they bear witness to the fact that these characters are self-absorbed cynical empty egotistical they are not good people But the end doesn't resolve with them being repentant either. There's no moral lesson that they learn in all of this. You as the audience are going, yeah, just to be clear, in case we weren't clear about this before, these people are not heroes. But that doesn't push them to, in the end, learn some moral lesson. They didn't learn any moral lesson. They carry on in the jail cell just as if they were sitting in the coffee shop like any other day. So, how do we see examples of a shift from a sort of Seinfeld postmodernism into meta modern comedy? To highlight just one example of this, we're gonna take a look at one of my favorite shows of the last few years. It's something probably many of you have not seen before. It's very under the radar show, but I think it's a prime example of meta modern storytelling within the genre of comedy, and I don't know if anybody does it better than Joe Pera Talks With You. Well? I think this season's gonna be good. We got a whole episode about sitting. Excuse me. You have a TV show? Yeah. What the hell's it even about? Well, uh, previous seasons were about rocks and bean arches. Uh, uh, this one's about Helping your friend pick out a retirement chair. Boiling pierogies for your girlfriend when she comes home drunk after wine night. The things Midwesterners keep in their second fridges. And uh, how to pick out the perfect DVD for your choir class. Lots of other stuff too. Any British actors in it? Uh, No. I think I might actually check it out. Thanks. You should, it's actually pretty good. If you're a personal friend of mine or family member, you've probably heard me rave about Joe Parra Talks With You. Only ran for, I think, three seasons, only had three seasons, aired on like Adult Swim, which, you know, was like, you know, the genre of, I think it was Cartoon Network or something, you know, their late night programming that in the 90s had like Space Ghost and uh, what was that other show, uh, like, what was it C Lab DSV or something like that. Pretty ironic postmodern comedies, but Joe Para talks with you is an well underrated absolute gem. And in fact Joe Para is a stand-up comedian who I would say is incorporating this sort of meta modern comedy into even being a stand-up comedian. Um you probably you might have seen him on like The Tonight Show on I don't know if he's been on Fallon, but on some of these late night programs, and he does some of his stand-up stuff there. It's brilliant, but it's brilliant and in this unique way. So the, what is Joe Parra Talks with you all about? How is this an example of modern storytelling and comedy? Not, not just one example, but a prime example. I mean, maybe one of the best examples in modernism in action. Joe Parra Talks With You masterfully navigates this delicate balance between sincerity and irony and encapsulates the essence of this cultural movement through a blend of gentle humor, candid storytelling, and a real, earnest, sincere exploration of everyday life. It's got this unassuming exterior, which in many ways feels a little bit like when you're first engaging with it, like, like maybe a little bit like Napoleon Dynamite, where you have the protagonist, the central character, Joe Pera, uh, is somebody that uh, you just, you're kind of expecting the whole time for this guy to be like horribly made fun of as if he were Napoleon Dynamite. He is not someone who would have high social status in any setting, not even in the own school that he teaches in, in the upper peninsula of Michigan, where he is a middle school Choir teacher, not exactly a coveted role in society, per se. He doesn't have a good sense of fashion. He walks a little bit like though it appears that he's probably in his early thirties by his face uh, and what he's doing at this point of his career in his life. But he he carries himself and dresses like a man who might be in their their seventies. All of this would make you feel as you're watching like the joke is on Joe. You know, and you'd see that a lot in in earlier versions of comedies where these kinds of characters would be the object of dereliction, the object of scorn and ridicule. And you're kind of anticipating that the whole way through you're watching this show. But it subverts that expectation. In a lot of ways, Joe Perez feels a little bit like a white Steve Urkel. <laughs> Steve Urkel from Family Members, if you, if you were a 90s kid like me. Um, and obviously like Urkel is the, 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 on the receiving end of all of these jokes. You're kind of laughing at him and you're expecting that to happen. And this is where you might go, all right, Joe Pera is postmodern because it's, it's like self-aware of those prior genres, self-aware of how this guy looks, how he talks. And yet it subverts that expectation to create a different experience. It's a fascinating show. It starts with an episode in which uh, it's called Joe Pera Talks With You because he talks to you as the audience as if this were like a documentary and you are his audience. And yet it's also like a story about his life and his community in the Upper Peninsula. It's very, very unique. So there's this, from the get-go, this breaking of the fourth wall happening. And I think the first episode is like Joe Pera talks with you about rocks. The premise of it was each episode, Joe Pera is supposed to be talking with you as if this was public television and you were learning about some subject matter. And in parallel with this, you're also going through like some facet of his life and the community that he lives in. Really fascinating. Uh, where can you watch it? I think it's, uh, I don't, it used to be on like HBO Max. I know that's not even a thing. I think it's Max now. I don't know. I don't want to give like an unpaid advertisement for streaming services. Go search. You'll find it out there. Incredible, incredible store, uh, story and great, great, great show. But how is it metamodern? That's the point. I don't want to just rave about this show. I'm so interested in it, not just because I, I like really appreciate how it's done, but I was so fascinated by it because I felt similar to the way I felt when I was watching everything everywhere all at once, which I actually, in the end, I I was just talking with some guys in our Patreon group last night on Zoom and I was trying to explain to them how much I actually appreciated everything everywhere all at once. I think I'm saying it right in this episode. I realized looking back, I think I botched it a few times calling it something else. But I was sharing with those guys uh, how much I appreciated studying it and was appreciative of what it was trying to do. And in the end, I actually wouldn't say I liked it. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say. So in many ways, Joe Pera is doing a similar thing. Joe Pera talks with you, is doing a similar thing in which you're going, this is very different. If you've seen everything everywhere all at once, you're like, this is not really like anything I've seen before. It's got some ingredients of things that I think I've seen before, but it's doing something different. Joe Pera is just like that except I am saying I come out of it actually liking it too. That would be the difference. How is it, though, reflective of these sort of like core ingredients of metamodernism? First of all, you could call Joe Para like irony as a wholesome gateway drug, okay? Joe Pera Talks With You is an in inviting gateway to a world that is exploring sincerity and irony together. And this irony, this feeling like this is so ironic. We're in the UP. That You shouldn't make a story about this. This should not be a television show. These people, you might like step back and if you were more calloused, you might go, these people don't deserve our attention in a television show. It's mundane life in the Upper Peninsula with nobody that is compelling, (laughs) nobody that is doing something world-saving at all. So in like that regard, it's like, okay, there's elements of Seinfeld here where Seinfeld is talking, so many of the episodes are revolving around these mundane, just stupid features of life. So that is still kind of got that Seinfeld element, but it's not there to highlight how absurd everything is. It's there as a medium for you to see how meaningful everything is. It's very, very different. So it's in some ways, it is highlighting how meaningful the seemingly meaningless is. And Para has not a drop. Joe Para, as an actor, as his role in the show, even as a stand-up comedian, there's not an ounce of pretentiousness. It's so humble. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. He's got this unassuming demeanor but yet, he's got these deep wells of insights. It's what, what I hear from many people who are really into uh, Ted Lasso would say about the character of Ted Lasso. is like You should have pity on this guy, but you don't because out of him comes these like sincere nuggets of wisdom that get you to reflect on your own life. Joe Pera does the same thing. It's got so much sincerity, so much warmth and yet it's still happening through the medium of irony, ironic communication, breaking the fourth wall. It's so wholesome. I mean, you got episodes on his, how he goes grocery shopping and how he makes a like an like a arch in his garden to grow tomatoes on and why Midwesterners seem to all have a second fridge in their garage. And it's, it's in that way you're going, okay, that sounds a little bit like Seinfeld humor, like the did you ever notice. And yes, it's a did you ever notice that it's kind of absurd, but it's also like this is your life and it's meaningful. This is the way in which it's meta modern instead of postmodern. It's sincere in its irony. And this is one of the other core ingredients you can that that sets this apart from something like a Seinfeld, from something like a, a Rick and Morty. It's sincere in its irony. I know that seems like what are you even saying? Is this paradoxical? But you have to experience it. You have to experience the, have the aesthetic experience of taking in the story and the medium of the way the story is told on screen to get it. It's a tale of everyday life, a tale of everyday life in places that, like, especially in the Midwest, in your quote unquote flyover states that feel like, what role are we playing in any sort of big story? We're not superheroes. We live in places that people don't even want a vacation (laughs) to. Like, what's the point of our life? I just, I'm a... Middle school choir teacher. I mean, there's part of me that can relate. I was, you know, a teacher for years, high school teacher for years. And, you know, as a teacher, you can sometimes relate to the, the daily grind of going, I'm talking to teenagers about stuff that I don't know if they even care about. And yet here I am caring about it. Why do I care? I can get that experience. And man, it just so beautifully highlights that. It is Focusing on the mundane, silly features of everyday life, but not in the same way that Seinfeld does. There's a act of contemplation, uh, maybe even I dare even say meditation that happens that can happen as you watch the show. I you know the difference between contemplation and meditation. I've maybe talked about this before in other places. Contemplation is like the spiritual act of looking upward in awe and wonder. I compare it to a telescope. Telescope spirituality—it's looking beyond, up higher. Um, it's contemplating um, in prayer. It's contemplating the the transcendence of God, that which is beyond you. It fills you with awe and wonder. Meditation is the practice of downscaling. So contemplations, upscaling, meditations, downscaling, and we go from a telescope to a microscope to essentially seeing the world below your typical field of view. The world that exists right underneath your nose and that you've missed. That to me is what the practice of meditation, even in within a Christian context, what that actually looks like. Your down uh, attention downscaling. I think that's a Vervakism right there. Tension downscaling. And watching Joe Pera talks with you is attention downscaling. It's doing the same thing. It shifts your perceptions, it shifts your frame. Shifts the, the normative frame that you are thinking about life in, especially if you're a very driven person, and it causes you to reevaluate your own measurements in your meaning-making experience. It weaves this narrative that spirals deeper into the intricacies of the everyday, with each episode, Joe Pera's exploration of topics like choir practice or minerals of the up and you go this is so dumb why would i watch this it gets you to think not about critiquing entire systems but about like all right inwardly what work do i need to do to be more appreciative of these absurd mundane apparently meaningless but they're maybe they're not right so joe para is not deconstructing joe para talks with you is reconstruction through the irony and sincerity. It's optimistic and skeptical at the same time. What do I mean by that? I think that's another, maybe another feature of metamodernism. The opticism, optimism, I should say, and skepticism. It's skeptical about the things that would potentially give one a false sense of meaning and tries to highlight in optimism the things that have been overlooked overlooked and neglected. And Joe Parra does exactly that. Joe's musings on the simple aspects of life. It's, it's both of those things. It critiques, you know, the characters that probably get the most critique in the show, there's a couple of them. I think he's got a colleague teacher that's kind of like this really, uh, I don't know, he's kind of like shock jock, alpha sort of vibes to him and if anything he seems like the most out of place like there's something wrong with you <laughs> in the the way he uh he engages with life it's that that's the skepticism the irony is not um is not like critiquing an entire system it's getting you to skeptically look at what are the things that i have falsely Given me life, or at least you know, in the, the eyes of this particular storyteller, which I think in many ways I find resonance with. Uh, I find my, m- resonance with the, the the storyteller's vision of a world that is actually endowed with tremendous amount of sacredness and meaning, but they are often within the the grasp of us already. It's like right here, right in front of you, um, and maybe you need simply to reframe it. And in the end, I think that gets at the core impulse of metamodern storytelling. Even if you disagree with the way the storyteller is attempting to highlight something that they see is worth pursuing, something that they see is worth reconstructing towards, even if you disagree with it, I think you can find, with a degree of optimism, that there are earnest efforts being made to try to endow the mundane with a sense of sacredness, to try to get us to reflect on our, dare I even say, our sins and our idols. Again, it's not to say that as you engage with modern storytelling, that you should come out and instantly, right, be, right when you recognize, oh, this is modern. I can see the sincerity and irony. I see these ingredients within it. I can see these patterns. Therefore, I must assume that reconstruction is happening in a positive way. I'm not saying that. The, the reconstruction being offered might not Be positive, especially from a Christian perspective. I am attempting to tune to the reference note of Christ, so that affords me the opportunity to say when I see something within culture, I can highlight it as positive effort at reconstruction. It might actually be orienting. I can see the 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 presence and activity of Christ at work in culture, orienting people towards true north. I will also confess that. There are instances where I might see meta modern storytelling happening and it is trying to get people to reflect on something and offer them a path to reconstruct. But I might disagree on the pathway and disagree on what the telos is that that storyteller is doing. I want to make this clear meta modern storytelling isn't just automatically good either. It's just a different way of storytelling compared to postmodern and modern storytelling and i hope the examples that i've cited in today's episode you find helpful i hope maybe that triggers you and your thought process to go oh i think this might be it Uh, i mentioned briefly for example ted lasso i have not gone through that series had a great talk with some people many people have reached out via dm and said oh i think ted lasso might be meta modern." great uh in the discussion forum for this episode or in our discord server for those on patreon Tell me why you think Ted Lasso is meta modern. Um, tell me what else you may be watching or reading, even if it's literature, graphic novels, comic books, I don't care. Whatever the story might be, I'd love to hear the different things that you're finding out there that give good illustration of the difference between modern storytelling and meta modern storytelling. In our next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about can the hero's journey actually fit within meta modern storytelling? The, camp, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, that classic hero's myth, the modern myth. Is there ways in which that can are there ways in which that can actually function within the vessel of metamodern art, in storytelling? And I think we already have a really good example of it. We'll explore that in part three: Metamodernism. Well, hey everyone, we're we're a bit short of our goal this year of two hundred patrons. In fact, we're probably only about halfway there, as of the recording of this episode. If you're finding this series helpful, I want to keep doing it. I want to keep doing this work, Um, but I need your help to do so. Would you consider if you're finding this to be of, of any help in your life, or maybe you're sharing it with others? Um, I'm doing this essentially instead of like teaching in a classroom where I would like you know classrooms that college campuses that are charging tuition. My idea behind this is I want to create tools that give people free theological, philosophical education so they don't have to go back to school to learn many of the things that you might learn in a graduate school or seminary or even undergrad philosophy classes. I'll tell you right now, I don't think there's many uh, seminaries and grad schools that right now are covering metamodernism. It's pretty new. There's probably some out there that are exploring it. So this stuff is on, uh, I think, on kind of the cutting edge. And so if you're finding it helpful, I'd ask of you to do is to consider supporting on Patreon. Don't do ads. Refuse to do ads. And so uh, if you think this is worth the investment, would you consider supporting at any level on Patreon? I want to give an extra special thanks to some supporters on Patreon who are uh, really going above and beyond the call of duty to make sure this, this program can still keep happening. Clint, Jesse, Alex, Alex, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John-Marc, Josie, J-Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Stephen, Tim. Thank you all for your generous support. Again, I'd love to hear from you. Tell me the things you're watching, reading, engaging with that are making you think, ah, oh, I think this might be meta-modern. It seems like it's something different. I've heard some really, really interesting ones over the last couple of weeks. I'd love to hear more. And uh, that'll also give me some things to keep engaging with as this series goes along. Reach out to me on Patreon or on Twitter or whatever it's called now, X, at Paul Anne Leitner. You can find a link for that below as well. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.